Delaware.E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P-12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. My name is Liz Farley Ripple. I'm the director of the Partnership for Public Education and also serve as a faculty member in the School of Education. I'll be the host for today's episode where we are joined by Dr. Allison Carpin, co-director of the Center for Research in Education and Social Policy and associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Delaware. Dr. Carpin, in her 20 years of experience, has published widely in journals including pediatrics, preventative medicine, and health affairs on program evaluation methods, topics related to hunger, obesity, school food, supermarket access, food security, healthy corner stores, and more. Additionally, Dr. Carpin has served as the Director of Research and Evaluation at the Food Trust in Philadelphia, has been a school board member, and serves on the board of several community organizations. Today, we've invited her to share her knowledge of food security and its implications for students and families in Delaware. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Carpin. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. So the goals of our podcast are to inform dialogue on critical issues that face our communities, and in particular, issues where we see disparities or inequities in both access and outcomes. So we've recently spoken with a colleague of yours, Dr. Anna Viles, about housing instability, and we want to keep those conversations going so we can develop policies and practices that address these inequities and improve outcomes for all Delawareans. Your work centers on healthy eating, nutrition, and food insecurity. What is food insecurity and why is it so important for us to be thinking about it? Sure. I'll just start by uh, a little uh, educational lesson. And that's that we used to use the term food insecurity all the time. And we've shifted a little bit to be more positive, if you will. And so we really talk now more uh, about food security. So what does it take then for all people at all times to have both physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food at all times? So this is a really broad definition. Um, and it's also about stability, but also economic access and nutritious food. So if you are able to what we used to call fill, bill, fill bellies, right? Um, you eat a bunch of chips and you have some bread and some ramen and your belly is full, that still doesn't mean that you're food secure because um, that's not necessarily a tr nutritious meal. So food insecurity, food security goes a little bit broader than that. Um, we also um, know that when it comes to food security, it's a question of access and economic access, which is both access you know, within geographic access, but then it's also um, economic access. And as we saw during COVID, it, it was literally a supply chain access. So many of us can probably remember kind of that panic that people felt when you went into stores and the food that you needed just wasn't there. Um, physically, it just wasn't in the stores. So that's one thing if you have resources to sort of 
you know, buy organic when you normally wouldn't or pay a little extra and get a smaller container. But um, for families who were on WIC um, or SNAP, they just were really stuck with very limited access because um, the shelves were empty. Yeah, so I imagine that the issues around um, COVID and the pandemic have created um, issues for food security for a lot of different communities. Why is this, or in what ways is this really critical for, for kids and families? What we saw nationally was a 10 million more people become food uh, insecure or lose their food security over the course of the pandemic. Those are our best estimates from national standards. So what we know is that um, before the pandemic, one in nine Americans in general, but if we look at children, it was one in seven children had uh, qualified as being food insecure. When we got through the pandemic, what we found was that those numbers lowered to one in eight adults and one in six children. And we expect those numbers to continue because of the economic impacts um, that really drive food insecurity. It's not a one for one, whether or not you're low income and whether or not you're food secure, but it certainly is very highly correlated. So that means, you know, one in six kids in any given classroom right then is potentially experiencing um, a lack of access to either food or healthy food. That That's an incredibly large number. And I think that makes this issue relevant to, to every school, to every community. Are schools or children experiencing this equitably or are there particular um, particular demographic groups or communities that experience this um, to a greater level? Yeah, so we see it um, disproportionately hit uh, rural communities, uh, seniors. I know that's a little less relevant for kids, although we do know there's a number of children, right, who live with grandparents. Um, certainly our minority communities are much more disproportionately impacted, so um, as well as our Hispanic communities. We also saw through the pandemic, um, you know, in Delaware, increased concern for Hispanic Latino communities and also those communities downstate where they were very reliant on poultry industry income. And as that industry was hit by the pandemic as well, things became um, increasingly difficult for those households. Our partners at Christiana Value Institute have taken to the streets, if you will, and done some community surveys, particularly focused on Hispanic and Latino adults. And what they found was that before the pandemic, they were running rates around 23% food insecure. And as recently as the last couple of weeks, it's been in the 70s. So there's a lot of hidden food insecurity in the state. And even though the food bank does an extraordinary job reaching out. We know that across this country, there's still very high pockets of hunger, whether it be because of um, concerns for immigration status and just not wanting to disclose or um, pride and um, you know concern about, about showing your face or maybe even culturally appropriate foods being available in the food system that it just doesn't seem worth it to reach out. Um, the, other, the other population that we worry a lot about are homebound seniors. And we know that senior centers were all closed during the pandemic, which really had a ripple effect um, on seniors, not just 
in terms of their ability to get food, but also on socialization and access. So as we know that the kitchen is kind of the heart of the home. And as we think about these issues at a community level or even at a state level, there's a lot of parallel between what happens in the home and how it affects many facets of our lives and the way that food sort of intersects with a lot of these issues, whether it be economic or cultural. That's really interesting and helpful to point out. I think that's true for a lot of us that the importance of food to many aspects of our lives. So as you know, Evidence for Education, our podcast, aims to bring research into policy discussions. So what does the research say about food security, um, who experiences it, who doesn't, and, and what are the causes of that? So the causes of food security are really based in jobs and economic uh, factors more so than you might think of, um, say, education or knowledge. We certainly know that um, everybody can benefit from learning how to cook something differently or learning new strategies to prepare food. And if you're on a budget, it can be even more limited, the kinds of foods that you can afford to purchase and try and you know recreate new meals different ways on a, on a budget. So we know that that's valuable, but really at the, at the end of the day, we know what impacts our purchasing patterns are really the amount of money we have to spend, um, as well as the, um, the cost of some of those items. So we know that, for example, um, when it comes to obesity, and I know the topic today is really about um, food insecurity, which is a little bit different. We call them two sides of the same coin, hunger and obesity. But when it comes to obesity, for example, we've seen incredible impacts from um, taxation on products like soda or candy. Um, and so we look at sort of this eclectic mix of strategies. What we know is there's not one magic wand in fixing this problem and that it comes down to um, what you have access to, what you can afford, and then access is sort of this laden word, right? So it means what's available to you nearby, what you believe you can afford. And that also connects closely to, to the kinds of social programs that we see um, available to families. A lot of times families make trade-offs. So if you have to purchase medication, we know that you're, you're gonna be trying to decide whether or not you buy your child's asthma medication this week, or you spend extra on produce at the grocery store. Um, similarly, we know as heat bills go up, people make these kinds of trade-offs. Um, other kind of emergency funds, I think many probably realized how fragile our food system can be. And I think in a lot of families, the family economic condition is just as fragile, if not more so, where the minute a car breaks down, then you can't get to work, then you can't buy the asthma medication, then your kid is sick, then you can't go to work again. And then, you know, you end up in this cycle where it seems like it's just a matter of education, but really it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, those are, the interconnection of those issues is, is really important, I think, for all of us to keep in mind that it's, you know, not just a single policy issue, as you pointed out. Um, you mentioned hunger and obesity are two sides of the same coin. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, so um, for a long time, we've recognized this um, seemingly contradictory 
condition where we know we have families that can't predict where their next meal is coming from. They're uncertain of when they'll be able to feed their child another nutritious meal. But at the same time, uh, the child is has a high BMI. And so, you know, people used to say, well, you know, maybe that's because they're getting too much of the wrong kind of food or they're getting too much food. We need to cut back on some of these benefit programs or maybe it's because um, it's an education and and children don't understand or maybe their parents don't understand what good food is. And so if we can just educate them to eat more broccoli and less potato chips, you know, we'll be able to tackle this problem. But we're learning more and more that it's an extremely nuanced system that our bodies um, operate and that there's a lot more factors to um, this double-sided coin than maybe we first realized. So we know that the cycle of, um, you know, hunger, having a lot of food at the beginning of the month, for example, if you're on food, food stamps, which is now called SNAP, if you have a lot of money in the beginning of the month, um, you spend it, you get that food, and then it runs out by the end of the month. And so you go through this kind of boom bust cycle in your feeding habits where um, your nutrition also goes through those same patterns. And the effect on the body is to really, um, you know, potentially store more and be less likely to expend um, those calories in the same way that, that you might expect if you were having a consistent diet. Um, we also know things like breakfast really matter. So kids who have breakfast every day consistently, even quite frankly, if that breakfast is something that's coming out of um, a, a plastic wrapper, then you think, you know, some kind of sticky bun that you think is probably not a great choice. Any breakfast um, is better than no breakfast. We know this to be the case, especially when it comes to obesity prevention, but then of course that also connects to food insecurity. And I think one of the most interesting new areas of science um, for me is the, our, our gut microbiome, which you might not think would come into this conversation as we're talking about kids in schools, but I think more and more we're realizing that that little, that little life that is inside of our bodies um, where one organism feeds another organism and is very dependent on one another really matters, not just for our gut health, but also for our mental health and our brain health. And we're discovering more and more what this means in terms of um, not just for our current generation, but what it means generationally. So if your parent didn't have adequate access to good nutrition, and then their parent before them even didn't have adequate access to good nutrition. What we find is that it's almost a multiplier effect in the wrong direction. So what you're born with is actually fewer of those gut microbiome than your parent and your parent has fewer than their parent. So, so this is a very concerning trend when we think about nutrition, but it's also is, is a reality for probably how and why we have this relationship between obesity and hunger as well. That is totally new science for me. So I'm really excited to hear you bring that up. And I'm sure that's going to be new science for a lot of our audience as well. So we've been talking about food security. We've talked about hunger as related to that. Um, obesity as sort of a strange partner in that uh, grouping. 
how do these issues impact kids and and what should we be doing about that so we see this manifest in a lot of ways i think we see we know when kids are in school full time which you know we're in a period now where kids are coming back to school but we know that when kids when kids are in school full time not having food just like we as adults who don't have food makes us grumpy it makes us act out it gives us a sore tummy it might make us put our head down on our desk and not be able to focus um and nurses across the country are more than aware and i'm sure teachers too of children who repeatedly do not have a good breakfast and its consequences, they hear them complaining all the time. So there's the day-to-day -day factors um, for kids that are very real. You just can't concentrate. Or, you know, alternatively, you might act out because you're angry. Um, we also see for children issues of shame. So there's a lot of programs across the country where we think long and hard about how to make sure that it's seamless for children to receive, for example, a school lunch or a school breakfast. Um, there's backpack programs across the state of Delaware where children can take backpacks home. Um, there's also food, food pantries now in schools that are really helping to alleviate those additional burdens. Um, so we see some of these solutions in place, but we still have that issue of stigma um, across communities. And I think sometimes uh, this idea of hidden hunger is especially now after COVID particularly concerning because whether it be the Hispanic community or whether it be um, a family that before the pandemic was easily able to make ends meet and now has had more than one layoff or um, lost jobs I think the pride issue is particularly um, a risk there for the children as well. Um, so we might see these things manifest in terms of depression or poor grades or, um, you know, rebellious type behavior, but it could all come back to an issue of hunger. So how do we best meet the needs of, of children and their families when it comes to food? Are there particular um, policies that work or particular strategies that, um, for example, our educators or education organizations might take that seem to be particularly effective in combating some of these issues? Yeah, so the first that I'll say is just think of hunger, right? So if you're dealing with a child or a household that the child repeatedly is unable to turn in homework or it's an attendance issue, stop for a minute and think about whether or not it could also be a hunger issue and ask, how is food supply in your home? Would it be beneficial for me to give you some resources so that you could receive some additional food for your family? This is not a difficult question to ask, but oftentimes it's forgotten because the focus is really on academic achievement, for example. Um, so I'll just say that as a practical, like don't forget about food. Food could really be a cause of a problem that we in Delaware have really good solutions for through the food bank, but sometimes we just forget to ask. When it comes to larger policy issues, we're seeing um, with the new Biden administration, a number of things rolling out that are uh, potentially extremely 
helpful to get us through this next COVID year, if you will. So we're seeing modifications to SNAP. We're seeing increases in um, temporary assistance coming through WIC program and also through SNAP, increase some in, increasing some of these um, dollar allotments that families can use in grocery stores to much higher levels than we've ever seen before. Um, and we're also seeing incredible fast-paced adjustments to the school meals programs so that some of the paperwork burdens um, have been alleviated. One of the biggest is something called a congregate meal requirement. And as it sounds, it means that children have to eat on site. So they have to congregate where they're eating and you can't give them something to go home. And we saw during COVID that that obviously wasn't very practical and it was waived. And so there's topics like that where the policy used to be very strict for a pretty specific reason, but now it's changed and we think it might change over time. I'll just mention one more and that's online grocery shopping because we saw the federal policy is that you can't include the cost of delivery and some of the special processing that's required for using SNAP um, or WIC on uh, online purchase just wasn't there. As a country, we didn't really have the capacity to process those. During COVID, however, there was a number of waivers and pilot programs put through. And I think in the coming years, especially for those who want that kind of access, we should see it coming through. Um, right now, we're sort of still in a little bit of a trial phase, but I think we're we're getting over this hump that a lot of us have called for for a long time, especially rural communities or homebound seniors, where it just makes a lot of sense to be able to order your groceries online. Those all resonate with me. I mean, watching the pandemic play out across our state here in Delaware, uh, I really saw schools and districts mobilize quickly um, to make sure that kids and families had access to food, right? All, faster than they even got their learning packets and, and Chromebooks out. And I think everyone across the state really deserves kudos for paying attention to that and, and mobilizing so quickly. Now, I know you have a report coming out with the Delaware Coalition Against Hunger. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So we're coming out with a report as part of the Delaware Coalition Against Hunger that talks about some of the lessons that were learned in 2020 and how the pandemic positively impacted food access in Delaware. And as I mentioned, there have been some real important lessons learned, whether it be new partnerships that came about because say transportation was kind of shut down, but at the same time, food distribution needed to be vamped up. And so folks from the transportation sector who are used to doing big events for you know music concerts, were diverted to go and help run um, food distribution sites. And those partnerships now have been formed and have a lot of potential for the future. Similarly, we saw all of these waivers that went through really created new opportunities to kind of prove that it's possible to do, for example, purchasing online or to distribute food without that congregate meal requirement. I think one of the other things that really came out of the experience of COVID that was positive was thinking strategically about what data we have in the state. And I know I'm a researcher, I talk about data and people you know, might roll their eyes a little bit, but 
we definitely came to realize that some of the data points we have might not be pinpointing where hunger or food insecurity is seen specifically and that better more sensitive ways of detecting that whether it be evictions or being able to see um, where job loss has gone incredibly high at a local or regional level um, might really help us better serve children and families with food as well. And I do so much work um, with local organizations like the one at Conscious Connections, which is in Wilmington. And I think we also need as a state to think very carefully about where resources are going when it comes to alleviating some of these social issues like food insecurity or obesity and reflect on what systematic inequities in education and in just sort of that prominence networking thing that happens when you're at an event and you mention something to somebody and they mention that there are resources for that and then it creates sort of this snowball of of wealth if you will that many do not have access to and organizations that are small and emerging and have been for some time i think in the state can get a reputation for being so because of some um reason other than <laughs> systematic inequities in the way that funding requirements are built so that unless you have the time and uh, knowledge to put together large complicated grant applications somehow you're seen as an organization that isn't effective in meeting the needs of your community. And so I would just kind of ask people also to circle back to some of those structures and rethink them a bit and see how we can't strategically get more resources to minority owned, smaller organizations that we know are doing really good work, but um, haven't necessarily had a steady stream of funds to do that. I really appreciate that point. I've met a number of people that are doing really incredible work at perhaps a smaller scale than some of the other organizations we tend to hear about. Um, and I think as we work to address these issues, right, both at the university, which of course we're, we're very big, but it's really important for us to work with those agencies and folks that are, are down on the ground and, and some of those smaller organizations because we can't we can't get this done without those groups that are so closely tied and committed to the communities they serve. So that's a really important thing to point out and I appreciate it. Now you mentioned that Delaware has some great resources that include, for example, the food bank and others. What are some of the best resources you might suggest, for example, for members of our audience that want to support food security across the state? Um, where would they turn? Um, so the Food Bank of Delaware is really the go-to for um, hunger relief leadership in the state. Um, they run a network of food um, cupboards and other emergency relief activities that, whether it be a mobile food um, van that can come through or some of these backpack programs in schools, they're responsible for a lot of that work in the state. There's other kinds of relief though, I think that might also be useful. The Meals on Wheels programs is one and Congregate Meals is another that um, 
depending on where you are in the state, you might um, use a, a different um, agency. There, I think there's three agencies in Delaware that do Meals on Wheels through the state program. Um, in terms of other resources, we know too that churches are a big resource, but I would also encourage listeners to think more about their farmers markets. You know, one thing we haven't talked much about in this podcast is the agricultural community in Delaware and how they were affected by COVID. And I belong to the Delaware Food and Farm Coalition, which is a coalition of farmers as well as uh, food school food service and others. And we just wrapped up a conference this past week where farmers talked very openly about, and restaurateurs for that matter, about how difficult COVID was for them and how much it really opened up all of our eyes to see how important a local supply chain is. Because while it seems like it would be easy to divert product from a restaurant to say a home or, or emergency food distribution, it really wasn't. Um, and as a result, farmers along with sort of the crisis at the border are really facing some tough, tough decisions this year as to whether or not they plant, how much they plant. Um, you know, our poultry industry also was hit hard by the pandemic. And, um, and what that really looks like for local food in America. I know we, sometimes we think, well, you know, we're moving to this global food system, just get over it. You know, Delaware used to be a farming state. If you go downstate, still looks green to me. Like, obviously there's gotta be a lot of farms down there. But the more you talk to farmers about the increasing regulations around environmental concerns, which are often valid, but increasingly regulated, um, coupled with some of these challenges with having workers growing fruits and vegetables in America is not an easy task. And we really do need to start to think whether or not we want to have food grown in America, or if we're really quite comfortable having it be grown in many of these other places where regulations are far less stringent and certainly not overseen in the way that we do it here. Um, and that's a very conscious decision to move toward investing in our local food system just by buying at farmers markets or buying a CSA box um, to support those medium and small scale farmers because I can tell you they're really hurting. They're really hurting right now. I actually just brought my first CSA box of produce this past week and I'm really excited about it and I'm glad to hear the background on that. Um, and I think it's important to share. Uh, I also think it's important that we not only support those organizations and those industries, but local ones, as you've mentioned, because they're part of this larger system of how we create access to food and how we ensure stability in that access, uh, especially during, for example, pandemics or the crises we're experiencing right now. So I really appreciate the holistic picture that you've painted here, uh, situating food security in a much broader context of the economy, health, well-being, and our education system. So this has been really great. And I'm sure that our audience is going to really value the conversation and tap into those resources that you've shared with us. 
So thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom on how we can work together to improve food security for communities in Delaware and for sharing strategies with us, which I know were eye-opening for me and for our audience. Thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence for Education, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. We hope you join us for future episodes where we'll continue our conversations about education and the critical issues facing our communities. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu forward slash PPE.